Father, the scripture says that it is better to trust in you than in man. And how often uh, we do just the reverse. We tend to think that people who are in different places in life, people with different resources that we need, people with different connections, people with different uh, networks, people with different um, uh, checkbooks that represent uh, big accounts, we think uh, oftentimes that they are the solution to what we need. But ultimately, Lord, our hope is in you. It's not that you don't use people, because you do. But when we start getting our eyes on men, as though they are the answer to what ails us. When we start looking to men of uh, privilege or power or prestige or status as the ones who can help us out of our difficulty, we are making a grave error. Um, Our our hope is in you. You are the provider. You are the sustainer. You love to be trusted. And we are learning as we walk through life. uh, We've come to know Jesus. He has changed us. Those of us who have trusted in him for our salvation. uh, We've realized that our good works won't cut it. That we have nothing to offer in terms of receiving forgiveness for our sin. Uh, We're just guilty. But Jesus came and he, with his perfect life and sinless life, died in our place and took our sins upon him. And when we trust in him, he gives us eternal life. But we're finding in this study that he gives us everything we need for life. Everything. Because he's the Lord of life. Sometimes, Father, we get frustrated because seemingly the things which we need and our attempts to make certain things work, our plans get frustrated. And we spend hours, and and we're trying to be responsible, and we are trying to do the right thing, and things will fall apart. Someone will hold it up. Uh, Some bureaucrat will, will, will put a stop on something that should have been done weeks and months ago. And how frustrated we get, and angry we get. But Lord, once again, even in the delays of life, even in the disruptions of life, you are sovereign over all. Uh, nothing, nothing can stop your plan of doing good to us. You do good at the right time. You take care of our needs at the right time. You supply what we need at the right time. And in the interim, you call us to trust and wait and to look to you. We do what we can do, Lord. We want to be responsible. But ultimately, our salvation and our deliverance in every area of life comes from you. Now tonight, Lord, open our minds. uh, Give us a surge of mental energy so we can hear from you and what you have to say from your Bible. Teach us, instruct us, encourage us, 
dissipate our fear. Give us hope for what's ahead of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. talking with my son Josh uh, today and he said so dad you're teaching on manna uh, what, what, are you, what are you gonna say tonight and I said well basically what I'm gonna say tonight is that uh, what I said last week I'm just gonna say it in a different way uh, why would I say basically what I said last week because repetition is the mother of learning um, I don't know where I heard that, but I heard it so many times I never forgot it. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it, how that works? Repetition is the mother of learning. Yeah. There are some things that uh, you just keep going over and over and over. Uh, no matter what you do in life, no matter what your area of work is or your area of expertise, there are certain fundamentals that you can never forget. Um, uh, Nolan Ryan uh, finished a chapter and was going into a new chapter uh, as of this week, those of us that follow Texas Rangers baseball. But uh, he pitched for a long time. Uh, one of the greatest pitchers that ever lived. Uh, pitched well into his 40s. Kind of interesting, isn't it, that Nolan Ryan would actually go to spring training. Did he really need to do that? Uh, what do you do in spring training? You work on fundamentals. You work on fundamentals that for most of those guys, they've been working on since they were eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old. The fundamentals they teach you in Little League, major leaguers do the same thing in spring training, and you'd think there wouldn't be a need for working on the fundamentals. But you see, the fundamentals never go out of style. There are certain things that you just stay with. There are certain things that are so basic to life that you just keep practicing those fundamentals of life. Um, how many times have you heard, if you were raised in church, you've heard this all of life. You've got to be in the Word of God. I've heard that since I, can, uh, since I can remember anything. You've got to be in the Word of God. You've got to be in the Word of God. Uh, I told Josh when he said, what are you going to teach? Well, basically, I'm going to say that, uh, you, you know, and early on we were talking about manna, that manna was a miraculous provision of God. Uh, the people were in the wilderness for 40 years. They were coming out of slavery, 400 years of slavery. They're going to the promised land because of the unbelief of 10 of their leaders. God says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They are away from civilization. You've got 2 million people that need to be fed. Uh, by the way, you know, they also need to be clothed. And do you know that it says in the, in the scriptures that their sandals never wore out in 40 years? Isn't that something? That's a miraculous provision of God. But when, it, but when it came to the manna, the manna was in Exodus 16. It was a miraculous provision of God for their food because they didn't have supply lines. How, how, how do you feed 
I mean, how do you feed two million men, women, and children on a daily basis for 40 years? It was a supernatural development, and, is, and, and, and listen, we all know this. We've been studying it. There would be, in the morning, there would be a dew-like substance. It would evaporate. It would be manna. That was their food. Uh, it, it was um, wafer-like. It uh, tasted like honey. Coriander seeds were, were in the composition of it. It could be baked. It could be broiled. It could be, you could do all kinds of things with it. But it was a supernatural provision of God. And as we said, if you took too much for the day or if you took too little, it would come out to the exact amount that you should have collected. If you tried to take too much for the next day, it would spoil. Everybody went to bed out of what they needed. And the next morning, they trusted God that it would be there again. And for 40 years, it was. Uh, So we have called manna a a supernatural, well-timed help. When your resources are cut off, when all supply lines are cut off, and it can be in any area of life, when, when you are out of the resource that you need, what do you need? You need a well-timed help. You need manna. You need the grace, uh, you need the grace of God. But you see, there's a different aspect to the manna. It was provided supernaturally for them. But they had to go pick it up. They had to eat it. They had to chew it and they had to digest it. Now, and if they didn't, what would have happened if they didn't eat the food that God provided? What would have happened to them? They would have become malnourished. They would have become weak. They wouldn't have been able to wander in that wilderness. They couldn't take the heat. They couldn't take the cold. Uh, If you don't eat, you run out of gas. The same thing happens to us spiritually. We uh, have looked at some passages about the importance on feeding on the Word of God. Uh, Jesus said in John 6, 35, he, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Uh, I think last week we also looked at Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Now, you can count on this. The children of Israel were in the wilderness. Jesus went into the wilderness That tells me I'm probably going to wind up in the wilderness at some point. When you wind up in a wilderness, it's a place you don't want to be. And when Jesus was in the wilderness in Matthew 4, he was tempted by the enemy. And what's interesting in those temptations that the enemy threw out to him in Matthew chapter 4, with every single temptation, he answered with Scripture. With every single temptation, he answered with the Word of God. Why? Because in Ephesians 6, we only have one offensive weapon, and it is the Word of God. The enemy, I think, has a strategy for men who know Christ and who love Christ. And I think his strategy is to con us and to dupe us into somehow thinking that we can get along without our offensive weapon, our only offensive weapon. And the fact of the matter is that we are in battle. The fact of the matter is we are in warfare. Uh, We don't fight against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6 says, but against the powers, against the principalities. So much of spiritual warfare has to do with the mind and wrong thinking. That's why in 1 Corinthians 10, it talks about philosophies, and it talks about the fact 
that, in fact, turn over there with me, if you would. Because you see, there is a spiritual war and there is a combat that is taking place. And if, if, we, are, if we are weak, if we are sickly, how in the world can we handle uh, the battle? How can we take things on that um, threaten to undo us? Um, where am I going? I'm going, no, I don't, but I'm thinking I'm not in 1 Corinthians. I'm thinking I'm going to, uh, actually, I'm going to 2 Corinthians 10. I was close. I was just a book off. I've been a step off all day, just a step off. Um, Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Watch this. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up, now watch this, against the knowledge of God. So when he talks about the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God is something that happens with our minds. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. But when we come to know Christ, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are given uh, a new heart and a new mind. The, the heart in the, in the scriptural context, has, the heart encompasses all of mind, the man. It encompasses the heart, the mind, the will. It's, it's you. It's everything about you. The, you know, when you say put your heart into it, everything you got, put into it. For the weapons are, of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Now watch this. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the warfare. Primarily, primarily, it is a warfare of the mind. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because you see, we are constantly barraged with thoughts that are contrary to the truth of God and contrary to the knowledge of God. Um, You ever feel like you're swimming upstream? That's because you are. That's why you would feel that way. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Broad is the road. Six lanes on each side. It's a new interstate. Boy, aren't those nice. You got, you got room. You got elbow room. Central Expressway, remember when it was two narrow lanes? Remember that? Gosh. And now you go driving down there by SMU. I mean, it's, it's, you got elbow room. About uh, 90 minutes out of 24 hours. <laughs> Where do those cars come from? I don't know. But when they first opened it up, you had elbow room, didn't you? Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. Few are those who find it. Um, We are not going with the current. We're going against the current. And may I say to you that uh, really what we're doing in this culture as men who are following Christ, if you're following Christ, you are swimming upstream in the Amazon River. Amazon River is the biggest river in the world. Many times over, it's the biggest river in the world. And the current, you can't even imagine it. And we're swimming upstream. 
We're not going with the stream. We're going against the stream. In order to do, and primarily, what are we fighting? We're fighting wrong thinking. We're thinking, we're thinking wrong teaching. We are fighting wrong information. And it's not just us, but it's our kids. We talked about technology last week. Uh, we talked about um, the distractions. I love Os Guinness's phrase. We are, we are living in, a, in an age where we are dealing with weapons of mass distraction. Because we have so many distractions, you see, that it's hard for us to find time to feed personally on the Word of God. Um, Matthew 4.4, Jesus said when he was tempted by the enemy to turn these stones into bread, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now you stop and track with me here. If it's true that I'm not just going to live physically, I have breakfast, I have lunch, I have dinner. That's my physical life. But there is a spiritual dimension to my life. We just read about this in 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Okay, that's the culture in which we live. Uh, so man shall not live by bread alone, but by, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, if I'm going to fight on the spiritual level and, and fight wrong thinking and wrong attitudes and wrong information that is contrary to the truth of God, I am going to have to have a certain kind of diet and I can't live without the nourishment of that diet. But the enemy cons Christian men into thinking, you know what? You can get by without that nourishment. You can get by with the Word of God. So you've got the Word of God. You've got the metaphor that the Word, and this is called mixing metaphors in a sense. You've got the metaphor that we're in battle, and the Word of God is my sword. It's my only offensive weapon. What the Word of God is also my nourishment. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So this book is the word of Christ. Uh, Deuteronomy 32. It's not an idle word for you. It is your life. All scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching. teaching. Teaching about what? About the truth as opposed to the speculations raised up against the knowledge of God. I've been raised with wrong information. I've been raised with propaganda. How do I fight that off? By the word of God. Yeah. So, the word of God is essential. If I'm going to have the nourishment to fight, if I'm going to have the nourishment to swim against the current of the Amazon River, I've got, I only have one source of nourishment, and it's the Word of God. But once again, the enemy comes along and says, you know what? You're really busy. And you are busy. Um, we talked last week about the kings. In Deuteronomy 17, when they were going to have a king, there were certain things that God said about the king of Israel. Uh, he couldn't multiply horses, then other nations could multiply horses. 
I'm just summarizing here. Deuteronomy 17, right around 17. He couldn't multiply horses. Why? Because horses pull chariots. Well, man, all the other nations have chariots. Yeah, but God wouldn't let them have chariots because God didn't want them trusting in chariots. God wanted them trusting in him. You will look around and other people will have things that you don't have. And, and you know, you say, well, how come I can't have it? They have it, they have it. You know what? Forget about them. God's dealing with you. There are certain areas in that area God is going to call you to, he's going to call you to trust him in that area. Your friend over here may not have to trust God in that area. He's got another area where he's trusting God, but we're all being forced to trust God. So I don't want you to multiply horses. I don't want you to multiply wives. All the kings, all the kings of the other nations had multiple wives. Why? That's how they made their alliances. That's how they got along and kept from war. Because if you married this king's daughter and, you know, you've got his grandkids, he's not going to attack you uh, because you've got his grandkids. And, you know, it just doesn't work. His wife would get upset. It wouldn't work. And that's how they did it politically back then. But the king of Israel wasn't to have multiple wives. He was to have one wife. And then he was not to increase silver and gold. And then the other thing we read in Deuteronomy 17 is that when he became king, he had to write with his own hand his own copy of the word of God. And then it goes on and says that he is to put it on the shelf and read it every Christmas Eve with his family around the Christmas tree before they open the presents. Oh, yeah, that's what it says in the Hebrew. It didn't say that. It says that he was to make his own copy of the Word of God in his own hand, and he was to read it all the days of his life. Why? Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. A king is a leader. You're a leader. You have a family. You're king of your family. You're responsible and give an account to God for your family as the kings would give account for the nation. Every family is a small civilization. How can you lead wisely, carefully, with discernment, apart from the Word of God, and navigate them through all the wrong information and propaganda that is out there. How can you do it? Who is adequate for these things? We're not adequate. But by His Spirit, He makes us adequate as servants of a new covenant. And the Spirit and Word always work together. So we have got to be nourished on the Word of God so we can nourish those under our care in the Word of God. Am I making any sense? So Al Mohler, Al Mohler's quite a guy. He's president of Southern, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Interesting because the Southern Baptists went through quite a catharsis 20, 25, 30 years ago. Because what had happened is that liberals had pretty much taken over the Southern Baptist seminaries. But there was a movement that happened within the church by those who believed in the Word of God and the power of the Word of God. And they started letting their voice be heard. And things began to happen. And one of the things that happened at Louisville, Southern Baptist Seminary, uh, Southern Seminary, in Louisville, uh, they were very, very concerned about uh, having the accolades of, of the Harvard Divinity School or the Yale Divinity School. Uh, liberal theology was creeping in. Uh, they, were, they were being paid and they were being funded 
by the offerings of people who believed in the Word of God. Um, and things started happening, and this young guy in his 30s was suddenly appointed president. His name was Al Mohler. And did he ever walk into a buzzsaw? Uh, at his inauguration, uh, he was spat upon because he believed in the inerrant word of God at a, at a Southern Baptist seminary. And they had to get rid of professors who would sign that, yes, I believe the Bible's the word of God, but they really didn't. He had to get rid of them. Not easy years. And now that is a seminary that stands on the word of God, unashamedly. Al Mohler um, recently spoke at Brigham Young University. Now, what is a Southern Baptist theologian doing speaking at Brigham Young University, which is a Mormon university? Uh, I've got his whole speech right here. And you can go online to his website and read it. It's, it's really worth reading. And as he gets, he was invited because he has a dialogue with some of their leaders and they're talking and they agree that they are not on the same page theologically, um, but they're having some dialogue. And as he gets up and addresses uh, the student body, he's very gracious, uh, honoring of the leadership, makes it very clear that uh, he says, I come as a Christian theologian to speak explicitly and respectively as a Christian a Christian who defines Christianity only within the historic creeds and confessions of the Christian church, and one who comes, and who comes as one committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the ancient and eternal Trinitarian faith of the Christian church. He just drew a line what he believes. And they knew what he believed before they invited him. But he didn't compromise. He was respectful, but he didn't compromise. And they think enough of him that they would invite him to come to speak. Isn't that fascinating? Okay. Now, I want to read some paragraphs to you to set this up. Because, again, what I'm trying to do, guys, in this, this is a thing about manna, and we all love the supernatural intervention of God when our supply lines are cut off, and God, does, and we've all experienced God does something at the last second. I, I had a, a friend email me, a few weeks ago, and his mother is, uh, has advanced dementia. It's really a sad situation, and they, they have her in an assisted care facility. And they had he emailed me, he said, we just got word that um, uh, this is all changing, and we're going to have to find another place for her. And it was very traumatic. And he emailed me uh, three days ago. He said, Steve, you wouldn't believe it. You just wouldn't believe what God did. It was remarkable. The care, they found a place, and the care she's getting, they're, they're just amazed. And the care before was good. This is incredible. It's just a better facility. There, there's just a higher level of excellence. Oh, and uh, they got it 6 a.m. They, they got notification 6 a.m. on the final day just that morning, before the last second God came through. Oh, and it's 30% less in cost. <laughs> Is that a well-timed help? Yeah. Thank the Lord. What a wonderful provision. That's manna for that family. But see, there's another aspect, and the other aspect is the consistent 
daily feeding on the Word of God. You can't live without it. Before I read this, I'd like you to turn with me to Acts 17. Because we saw the the kings in Deuteronomy 17, the requirement for the king to have his copy of the Word of God. And then he was to read from it all the days of his life. And then if you go to Acts 17, we're going to read this. Um, in, In the first nine verses, Paul is at Thessalonica. And then beginning with 10, he heads to Berea. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now watch this. Now these... These Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now watch this. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures, what? Daily. Daily. To see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. You You see the same principle. See, they examined the scriptures. They were in the scriptures, not... Not on Christmas Eve, not, not once a month. Not, they were in the scriptures daily, just as you have your breakfast daily, just as you have your lunch, just as you have. You got to eat. You got to eat physically and you got to eat spiritually. And if you don't eat for two or three or four days, what happens to you? You start getting a headache. You start getting a little wobbly. You can't. Have any of you guys ever tried to fast? They ought to call that a slow. <laughs> because there's nothing fast about a fast. If you ever decide, well, in the Bible, when people are in great crisis, great, great crisis, you often see them. Uh, all a fast means is that you abstain from food for, for a season in order to concentrate and pray and pour out your heart before God because you're in a, you're in a, a, a situation of utmost danger and calamity if God doesn't come through for you it's of such a magnitude that the normal issues of life you set aside in order to seek him so you will see people in scripture fasting at particular times it just means instead of the time it would take to prepare a meal and eat a meal and clean up you don't miss with it you spend that time in prayer now if you've ever done that for a day or two uh, you don't feel real great you have trouble thinking. You have trouble functioning. You have trouble, uh, you just have trouble. Why? Because you're not getting nourishment. So you can't live that way. You can do it for a little bit, but you can't do it long. But man, we think spiritually we can do it. Okay. This is why they, the emphasis is on daily. Daily. Okay. You see, Steve, you keep saying that. Good. You're getting it. All right, now let's get back to Al Mohler, speaking at Brigham Young University. And what he's talking about, he's talking about the fact that the world and the way the world thinks is undergoing a dramatic shift. Um, And it's because of our modern world, what he calls, we call, you know, we use the word modern, the, the word would be modernity, if you will. 
There is a new way of thinking. Now, let me just jump in the middle of this and you track with me. And as you're listening to this, on your back burner, understand this is why in this day and age, in this time, we as men with families, children, grandchildren, spiritual leaders must be in the Word of God daily because there is an assault on thinking and the things of God in such a way that is so pervasive. A case could be made. There's never been anything else quite like it in history. Let me just jump in. He says, among evangelical Christians, a frightening percentage of youth and emerging adults hold to what um, sociologist Christian Smith and his associates have called, now I'm going to give you a big term here, moralistic, therapeutic deism. That is a religion that bears no substantive resemblance to biblical Christianity. But many people that consider themselves evangelical Christians, that's what they hold to instead of orthodox Christianity. Now explain it in a minute. The background to this great intellectual shift is the secularization of Western societies. Modernity has brought many cultural goods, but it has also, as predicted, brought a radical change in the way citizens of Western societies think, feel, relate, watch this, and reason. See, we were talking before the session about the young guys... I talked about this a while back, and you talked to some young guys. What is your view on the Old Testament? Christian guys. And most young men in evangelical Christianity have huge authority issues with the Old Testament. Just ask them. It's not all young men, but it's many. Why would that be? Well, it's because there's been a radical change in the way citizens of Western societies think, feel, relate, and reason the Enlightenment's liberation of reason at the expense of revelation. So that period called the Enlightenment, they rejected the revelation of the Bible. That they were enlightened. Actually, they went into great darkness, but we call it the Enlightenment. Okay, now stay with me here. The Enlightenment's liberation of reason at the expense of revelation was followed by a radical anti-supernaturalism that can be scarcely exaggerated. There is no God. There is no creator. You just stop and think everything that's happened scientifically since we went, since the Enlightenment hit and reason was elevated and revelation was denied, and you've got an anti supernaturalism. Uh, Stephen Hawking holds the chair at Cambridge, which Sir Isaac Newton held, what, 300 years ago? And Sir Isaac Newton, I might have said this last week, but shoot, I don't know what I said yesterday, so I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> Sir Isaac Newton, 300 years ago, you know what's fascinating? There was a plague that hit London, the Black Plague, the bubonic plague, hit London in the 1600s. It was making it, people were just dying. I mean, they were stacking them in the streets. They had no idea what this was about. And it started moving north up to Cambridge, where Isaac Newton was studying they closed Cambridge down. He went up north to the family farm just to get away from the plague. And what happened, if you read his biography, they say that he was a year in his own lab, in his own family farm, and because of the quietness and because of the uninterrupted nature 
of his seclusion in a year, science advanced a hundred years through the mind of Isaac Newton, who believed in God and in the scriptures and in supernaturalism. And he believed that when he was studying science, he was studying the handiwork of God. He didn't reject this book. Okay, stay with me. Looking at Europe and Great Britain, let's look at that. You got that in your mind? Where are they spiritually? Let me tell you something. They make us look like the Bible Belt. Looking at Europe and Great Britain, it is clear that the modern age has alienated an entire civilization from its Christian roots, along with Christian moral and intellectual commitments. This did not happen all at once, of course, Moeller says. Though a nation such as France and Germany, the change came quickly. Sociologists now speak openly of the death of Christian Britain. And the evidence of Christian decline is abundant. Uh, Why is this happening? He quotes a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. You guys still with me? Are you? I mean, really? You looking at uh, ESPN on your phone? (laughs) This is worth it. Now just stay with me here. Charles Taylor, this Canadian philosopher, argued in 1991, the modern age is marked by two great intellectual moves. He said, well, this doesn't affect me. Yes, it does. You, you might even believe these two things and don't even realize it. The first intellectual move is a pervasive individualism. The second is the reduction of all public discourse to the authority of instrumental reason, means human reason. The rise of modern individualism came at the cost of rejecting all other moral authorities. Who is the ultimate moral authority? God. Okay. Modern freedom was won by our breaking loose from older moral horizons, Taylor explains. This required the toppling of all hierarchical Authorities and their established moral orders. That's the Judeo-Christian ethic. That's the word of God. People used to see themselves as part of a larger order, he said. Modern freedom came about through the discrediting of such orders. Discrediting this. The primacy of instrumental reason means the elimination of the old order. This and a specifically theological moral order. Taylor explains, here's a direct quote, no doubt sweeping away the old orders has immensely widened the scope of instrumental reason. Once society no longer has a sacred structure, if there are no Ten Commandments, if there's no morality, once social arrangements and modes of actions are no longer grounded in the order of things or in the will of God, they are in a sense up for grabs. They can be redesigned with their consequences for the happiness or well-being of individuals as our goal. You get that? That's where we are. That's the culture. That's the air we breathe. It's what your kids breathe and your grandkids breathe. Now, don't lose me here because he's going to talk about three shifts uh, real quickly. He says in his book, The Secular Age... Taylor does, he describes three successive sets of intellectual conditions. In the first, which was associated with the pre-modern age, we're in 
the modern age, he would call it. Uh, he says, in the pre-modern age of antiquity, here's number one, it was impossible not to believe. Uh, Stephen Charnock has a book called The Existence and Attributes of God. It's about that thick. A series of lectures he preached at Thomas Watson's church in London, St. Walpole's church. You can visit it today. It's just up from St. Paul's. And you'll see Thomas Watson's name on it, and uh, Charnock was his associate pastor. In that book, written in the 1700s, he's talking, at a certain point, he's talking about atheism. And if I'm not mistaken, he says that he doesn't believe that there are 50 atheists in all of England. Why? Because it was a time where it was impossible not to believe. This is the time of Isaac Newton. There was simply no intellectual alternative to theism, the belief in God in the West. There was no alternative set of explanations for the world and its operations or for moral order. All of that changed with the arrival of modernity. In the modern age, in the modern age, it became possible not to believe. That's the second point. A secular alternative to Christian theism emerged as a real choice. As a matter of fact, choice now ruled the intellectual field. The third set of intellectual conditions is identified with late modernity, which is where we are, and our own intellectual epoch. For most people living in the context of self-conscious late modernity, that's us, it is now, watch this, impossible to believe. This is a stunning intellectual and moral revolution. It defies exaggeration. We must recognize that it is far more pervasive than we want to believe. For this intellectual revolution has changed the worldviews, watch this, of even those who believe themselves to be opposed to it. You say, I don't believe that, but you've got to carefully look at your life because many of us, many of us live our lives by these principles. He then goes on and says, if nothing else, many religious believers in modern societies now operate as theological and ideological consumers, constantly shopping for new intellectual clothing, even as they believe themselves to be traditional believers. Everything is now rejoice, is reduced to choice, and choice is, as Taylor reminds us, central to the moral project of late modernity, the project of individual authenticity. Now, this is getting a little murky. Let's make it, let's apply it to real life. How many of you guys are married? Let me see your hands. Okay, listen to this. The clearest demonstration of this monumental shift in morality and worldview is the revelation now under is the revolution now underway with regard to marriage, the family, and human sexuality. Long ago, historians Will and Ariel Durant noted that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints. The primary restraint has always been the institution of marriage itself, an institution that is inescapably heterosexual and based in the monogamous union of a man and woman as husband and wife. In our times, the fires of sex and sexuality are increasingly unbanked and uncooled. Uh, similarly, Pitarim Sorokin, the founder of sociology at Harvard, pointed to the regulation of sexuality as an essential first mark of civilization. According to Sorokin, civilization, watch this, 
You wonder why we're declining? Listen to this. Civilization is possible only when marriage is normative and sexual contact is sexual conduct is censured outside of the marital relationship. That's the only way you have a stable society. Furthermore, Sorokin traced the rise and fall of civilizations and concluded that the weakening of marriage was a first sign of civilizational collapse. Sorokin made these arguments long before anything like homosexual marriage had openly been discussed, much less legislated. Sorokin's insight was the realization that civilization requires men to take responsibility for their offspring. This was possible, he was convinced, only when marriage was held to the unconditional expectation for sexual activity and procreation. In other words, there's no sex outside of marriage. But we've lost that. Then he goes on and he quotes another guy, Bruckner. I'm almost done. Then we're going to look at the Bible. Because about this time, I'm dying for the Bible. Is this a little depressing? Yeah. This is the air we breathe, and this is what is in our schools. This, quite frankly, is uh, it's everywhere. It's the media. It's technology. Last week, we quoted Josh McDowell. He says, young people get their information from bloggers. Bloggers. Bloggers who believe what? 95% of them believe this. Now, let's, this guy goes on, and he says, he quotes... Moeller is, is quoting um, Pascal Bruckner, a French intellectual. He says, since the Enlightenment, marriage reforms have focused on three points, reforms, giving priority to feelings over obligation. Did you catch that? I see Christians doing this all the time. They want out. Not because they have biblical grounds, but because they're so miserable. So what, 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 is, what is the new benchmark? My feelings are more important than my obligation. That didn't used to be that way. Here's the second one. Doing away with the requirement of virginity. Boy, you want to be laughed at and scorned. It takes a lot of guts for Tim Tebow to have his testimony. And he's mocked and he's ridiculed. The third thing is, um, uh, let me read it again. Three points. Giving priority to feelings over obligation, doing away with the requirement of virginity, and making it, easily, making it easy for badly matched spouses to separate. He goes on, Muller says, and I'm done here. He says, feelings now rule, defined and projected at will. Virginity is as an embarrassment for most modern people. Cohabitation is now the order of the day for young moderns and for an astonishing large percentage of their parents and grandparents. You have people in evangelical churches that are living together and think there's no problem with it. And there is a problem with it. I'm going to stop there. This is the age in which we're living Many Christians have bought into this. And you say, you know, Steve, this has been a couple weeks now. You keep hammering the importance of being in the Word of God every day. Yeah. How else are you going to fight this? How else are you going to lead your family with integrity? 
How else, if you don't feed on the word of God yourself, how else can you stand firm? How, how in the world can you swim against this current? You can't do it. Uh, I, 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 that took a lot of time. But I'm, I was trying to make a case, guys, that we are living... You know, in 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones stood at Westminster Chapel, addressed his congregation in 1959. And you know what he said? He said, we are living in days of exceptional evil. 1959. Many of us would cut off our right arms to go back to 59. He wouldn't believe where we are today. If that was exceptional evil, what do you think this is? Um... Go with me to 2 Chronicles 20, if you would, very quickly. In 2 Chronicles 20, you have a godly man, a godly king. There weren't many godly kings in the Old Testament. They were just a handful of them. But in 2 Chronicles 20, you have one of the godly kings, not a perfect king, but a godly man who loved the Lord. His name was Jehoshaphat. And I'm just going to kind of summarize this, because in 2 Chronicles 20, he finds himself in a great crisis because he gets word that three enemy armies of the nation of Judah are camped just down the hill, a day's march away at En Gedi, and they're coming to take Jerusalem and destroy Judah. Uh, the nation has been split. The nation has been divided. He has a very weak military, and this is horrific news and they are absolutely vulnerable and pretty much defenseless. Uh, he is to give leadership to his people in a crisis situation. This is where a steady diet... See, when you hit crisis, what you have been chewing on and what you have been feeding on is critical to health and stability and leadership when everything is about to fall apart. Does that make sense? Um, this is what we train for. This is what we discipline ourselves for. And what happens, he is told, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea. Verse 2, probably an army of at least a million. Uh, verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid. He turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered to seek help from the Lord. They even came from the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Now watch now, I want us to observe this guy and how he handles this crisis, okay? And I mean, their lives and their survival is on the line. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, now watch what this guy does and watch how he prays. O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens and are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Is that true? Yes, it is. Watch this. Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Where did he get that? Where did he learn that? He learned it from his personal 
copy that he had penned of the word of God. Now, we are not told that he read it daily. But I will tell you this. There is a marked difference between the majority of kings in the Old Testament who were bad and evil and in rebellion to God and led the people away from God to idols and burned their own children in the fire. There is a marked difference between those men and between the handful of men that sought the Lord and were good. There's a dramatic difference. It doesn't say, I can't find anywhere, that he read the scriptures every day. But I have a very strong suspicion that he did because when the crisis came, he stood firm on the truth of the living God and there's only one place to get the truth of the living God. Does that make sense? You only get this from the scriptures. And then he goes, verse 7, Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to your descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? He goes right down the line, quoting the history of the nation and how God provided for them. He starts with the sovereignty of God. You You cut him and he bleeds sovereignty. You cut him and he bleeds the power of God. Look at verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? We are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do. Watch this. But our eyes are upon you. His eyes weren't on them. My eyes are upon you because you are greater than all. This is a guy who read the word of God. This is the guy who had stability in crisis when his whole world's coming apart. He, because of his trust and faith in the sovereign God, and he calls out for his, we're powerless, but our eyes are on you. Watch what happens. Uh, he gets a, a, an answer to his prayer. The prophet says, verse 15, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. Watch this, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And then he goes on and says in 17, you don't need to fight this battle. Station yourself, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. And then God basically says, I'm going to turn them on each other and they're going to kill, each, they're going to kill themselves off. And that's exactly what happened. My point in all this is that how do you survive in, an, in a climate where there is no reason, rhyme or reason, that you can survive? only by the power of living off the Word of God. Are you guys getting this? It's the only way you can survive. Sometimes we find ourselves in places we don't want to be. Um, So a couple weeks ago, there's, I I do this study, I do this, I, I do this study here, obviously. I do the same study at noon down in, um, uh, Addison for a group of business guys. And, is, and last year, some other business guys asked me to do one in Las Colinas on Thursdays. So I teach twice on Wednesdays. I'll teach tomorrow at 11.30 in Las Colinas. And I've noticed a couple guys, uh, sometimes I'll see them Wednesday night, and then I see them the next day over there in Las Colinas. They come Wednesday night and they come Thursday. And uh, there are two guys that come to my mind. One of them couple weeks ago, I never, never really talked with them except to say hi and just, you know, shake their hand. And um, a couple weeks ago, 
one of the guys was hanging around and talking. He was talking to somebody, and then we started talking. And I said, oh, yeah, I see it both today. Yeah, sometimes I come both. And, and uh, I said, how long have you been coming? He said, oh, about a year since I got back to Dallas. And I said, where were you prior, prior to coming to Dallas? This guy's in his mid-60s. He said, I was in uh, prison for 17 years. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I was in prison. I said, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was in prison and uh, for something I didn't do. And you hear guys say that, and your first thought is, well, that's what they all say. Right? Yeah. And then we started talking, and um, as he began to tell me his story, he handed me uh, Tim LaHaye. A lot of you know Tim LaHaye. Years ago, he did a book called, called How to Study the Bible for Yourself. And in the book, he talks about a gentleman by the name of Bill Kennedy. By the way, the guy I was talking to after the study is a gentleman named Bill Kennedy, and LaHaye talks about him in the book because Bill Kennedy and Tim LaHaye were... In, good friends and involved in different projects together. And uh, he said, you know, Steve, it's right here if you'd be interested in looking at it later. So I said, yeah, I would. Um, and Bill Kennedy's here tonight. Let me read this to you. This is what LaHaye has to say. My friend Bill Kennedy was sentenced to 20 years in prison for a crime he never committed. The whole thing is such a confusing malfeasance of justice, it's hard to believe. I'm convinced a liberal prosecutor went after Bill with all the power of the government because he was the publisher of one of the most conservative magazines in the country. Uh, liberals didn't like the way he exposed some of their prominent spokesmen and set out to destroy him. Had it not been for the Lord, they would have succeeded. By the time you read this, hopefully his unfair trial will have been overturned and he will be a free man. It was never overturned. 17 years. Whether free or not, he is already a much stronger Christian with a vibrant testimony, even in prison. How do you get through being in prison and you didn't do it? By the way, when Bill was talking to me, I said, have you met Brad, the guy who started the study in Las Colinas? He goes, yeah, I've talked to Brad. The reason I wanted to make sure he talked to Brad was that Brad had been in prison for something he didn't do. And I know you think, yeah, but that's what they all say. <laughs> yeah, but he really didn't do it. And maybe a few weeks after we started that study in Las Colinas, Brad introduced me to a gentleman in his 60s, sharp-looking guy, and we just chatted for a minute, and uh, the guy had his Bible, you know, obviously had used it a lot. And when the guy left, Brad said, you know, when I went to prison, uh, he greeted me. He was my mentor. He helped me get through. And you know what's wild, Steve? He, he was in prison for something he didn't do. You say, hey, you know what? Joseph was in prison for something he didn't do. I have a letter from Brad. I still keep it in my left-hand drawer. It's one of the greatest letters I've ever received. It was like getting a letter from Joseph when he was in prison. LaHaye goes on and says, the first night Bill called from prison, I prayed for wisdom in dealing with him. He was understandably very depressed. As gently as I could, I challenged him to begin a Bible study program while in prison that would help him mature in his Christian life. Like many long-term Christians, he was a good father and husband, but immature spiritually, and he knew it. Obviously, 
Discipling him would be different for most of the men I have discipled through the years. For one thing, I couldn't call him. He had to call me. I traveled a great deal. He only had limited funds for long-distance calls. The only answer was for me to suggest some tools for Bible study and for Bill to disciple himself. The first thing I, and, and Bill started telling me this. He said, let me tell you what happened. I was so depressed when I got in there. Uh, I, I didn't think I could live. I didn't think I could survive. And I asked God to save my life and give me the gift of joy. And you know what was interesting? That whole time he was in there, he was leading guys to the Lord because it was kind of a white-collar crime deal. And they all would look at this guy, and he had joy in his life, but he'd been in there longer than anybody, and he was staying longer than anybody. And they'd come and ask him, what, what is it with you? How to get the joy? Well, Tim LaHaye suggested that he read the book of Philippians every day for a month, every day. And the reason he wanted him to read Philippians was that it was written by Paul when he was where? In prison. And Bill quickly found the verse, I have learned in whatever state or prison I am to be content. Uh, Only another person who wrote from behind such unjust prison bars could have conveyed such a blessing. Then I had Bill read every day for a month the five key chapters, Ephesians 4 and 5, Galatians 6, Colossians 3, and John 15. And what happened is every day when all his regular resources of life were cut off, he lived and survived in an unbelievable, pressure-filled environment that he had no desire to be in by the power of the Word of God. That's how he survived. And he had a ministry and would lead guys to Christ. Is that not wild? That's incredible. Where's Bill? Hey, Bill, stand up. God bless you, man. We love you. We're glad you're here. Yeah. So guys, sometimes it's not a literal prison, but we're in a prison of a culture that is saying all the wrong things to us about God, that I should live off how I feel rather than my obligations. That you know, that sexually I ought to be out here and out here and out here, and you shouldn't be out there. Paul said, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, this is 1 Thessalonians 4, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each man know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, how do you fight sexual temptation? You've got to have the word of God in your heart. I, I, I mentioned to you there's a plan for reading through the Bible in a year, but you know, there are many different ways to do this. And it doesn't matter what you do as long as you just get into it. Uh, the Bible can be a confusing book. So you got to get a little bit of coaching. Um, don't start in Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus was written for the Levitical priest of the Old Testament. Are you a Levitical priest? Now, Leviticus is full of Jesus on every page. But you probably don't want to start in Leviticus. 
you probably want to start maybe in Philippians, as Bill did. Hmm. Very practical. Um, or you may want to start in the Gospel of John to find out who Jesus is. John MacArthur tells the story of the biggest abortionist in his county who suddenly found himself in, in, in trauma and showed up in MacArthur's office and said, you got to help me. And MacArthur looked at him and said, I can't help you. And the guy said, what do you mean you can't help me? you got to help me. MacArthur said, I can't help you. I have nothing. I can't help you. And he said, I was, but listen, you got all these people around. There's thousands of people here on a Sunday. What do you mean you can't help me? He said, I just can't help you. He said, well, you've you got to have some answers. He goes, I don't have any answers. And he said, but this book has answers. And what he said was, he said, I'm going to give you this Bible, and there's this gospel called John, and you go home and read it. Because there are answers in there. I don't have answers, but this has answers, because it's God's book. And this guy, who was a liberal, Jewish guy who didn't believe anything, had no problem aborting children, shows up weeks later and says to MacArthur, I know who he is. He said, what do you mean you know who he is? He's God. Who's God? Jesus. Well, how do you know he's God? Right there in chapter 1, it says... And then MacArthur, he just started, and, and what happened was this guy just started feeding on the Word of God. And you know what happened? He came to Christ. I met a guy this weekend in California at a men's retreat. And I walked in, and the guys are standing around. And one of the guys said, hey, this is uh, Leaf, and you ought to get to know Leaf. He said, he's got an amazing story. I said, oh, really? The pastor was telling me, yeah. He goes, Leaf used to be an atheist. I said, really? How long have you known the Lord, the Lord Leaf? He goes, three months. I said, three months? Yeah, I was in his mid-40s. He goes, yeah. Three months? He goes, yeah. I said, what happened? He said, well, I've never believed in God. And um, I, got to, I met this gal and um, invited her to lunch, and she said, well, I'll go to lunch, but I go to church first. Why don't you come to church with me? And so I showed up and went to church, and the pastor got up and was preaching the Bible. And all I can tell you is when I walked in there, I didn't believe, and when I walked out of there, I did believe. And Jesus was the Son of God. That's all I can tell you. And he's, I, I said, you mean just, he goes, yeah. I mean, I just, I just, he said, you know what I wanted to do? I was sitting there, and I just, this is what he told me. He said, I just wanted to surrender. I wanted to surrender. <laughs> I said, that's like C.S. Lewis, who said when he got into his, the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle, and they were riding into Oxford, 10 miles. When he got in, he didn't believe. When he got out, he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. That's all he can tell you. Are you depressed? Read Psalms. Just read the Psalms. When I went through that depression in my early 30s, I was pastoring and preaching all I could read with the Psalms for a year. That's all I read. It's the word of God. It's the word of Jesus. Just get in the book. Just get in the book. Get an ESV study Bible, and if something's not clear, read the comments. Or get a Bible that's balanced and read the notes. They'll help you understand. But get in 
the book because we're fighting a current and only the word of God can nourish us and help us to stand firm and live out the truth. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the power of your word. Thank you that we find ourselves in circumstances that are unimaginable, and there's no way we get through except for your word, except for your word. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between joint and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it's our spiritual food. Give us the desire to read it, to listen to it, to digest it. And Lord, may we, if we have guys in here that have never done this, may they do it. May they try it. Find a time, find a place. Open their Bible and begin to read with a pencil. And just say, Lord Jesus, speak to me out of your Bible. Would you do that? Would you do a great work through your word in our lives? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.